You're listening to the Soul Strategies podcast hosted by the team here at Soul Strategies. We hope you like the latest episode and thanks for tuning in. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Soul Strategies podcast with your hosts, James Ray and Josh Willis, the only two J names in politics that you can probably trust with anything remotely uh, important. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, capitalism's uh, interactions with it, particularly in the U.S. context, and talk a little bit about why we're all basically just being worked to death uh, for the sake of corporate profits in the midst of a nationwide pandemic. So, Josh, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. You know, entering day, what, 680 almost of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, at least as far as the U.S. context goes. And uh, yeah, like you said, we are seeing, um, you know, 2022 is turning into just another uh, year. Uh, Like we've seen the past few years of uh, capital really coming into conflict with this new normal, quote unquote, of COVID and how, you know, the United States and the 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 economy of the United States and and the market of the United States is really prolonging this incredible pandemic that we have now been a part of for almost 700 days. It is one of those things that is mind-boggling to think of, you know, back, you know, 2020 when all of this stuff hit the fan and there were people that were talking about, oh, you know, it's a few weeks off, whatever, you know, we get a longer spring break. I know college kids were saying things like that. Here we are two years later, we're still very much in this reality. And I think that one of the things that's important for us as leftists, um, as critics of, of capital to uh, really take uh, an approach or take a step to try to diagnose maybe what role capital plays in the prolonging of this. Um, and I think that one of the easiest ways to start is, you know, you see that joke about like the United States is saying, you know, time to open up and, and quote, like quote unquote die for the economy, right? Back in, I want to say in the early days of the pandemic, when Donald Trump made the, the incredible statement that we were going to be open by Easter, um, which, you know, if you're, if you're keeping track, that is almost uh, two years ago. Um, and we were supposed to be open by then. And it was a lot of it was just because, you know, productivity was at an all time low, you know, everything was shut down, businesses were shut down. And at some point, you know, uh, the machine in Washington wanted to stop, you know, paying for Americans to sit at home and sit and stay safe. Right. So we had to open the economy back up and, and that's kind of been where we're at is we're in this constant state of opening and then pulling back and then opening again and pulling back. And we really haven't committed to either side. And it's that middling period that we're in that is really where we're facing a lot of the, the problems um, is, is because we haven't really committed to fully opening up or we haven't really committed to fully locking down. It's because, you know, we are kind of with the market, we are rising and falling, we're opening and closing. Um, as you know, these different strains of COVID kind of cut through our population, and uh, it's kind of deemed necessary to open back up the economy and then close the economy again and then open it back up. So um, I'm just curious to see, like, what are your thoughts, like, in general, and any of the um, potential diagnoses you have for why it is that, you know, uh, it seems like the market, um, the market conditions of the United States have really prolonged this, uh, this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to know, you know, the United States never really, in my opinion, had a hard lockdown. 
down. And that's kind of been like the, the first and foremost, I think, issue is that we had a series of soft lockdowns kind of um, state dependent because, you know, you had, a, you had an early Trump administration that was really reliant on making COVID a state issue. And then a Biden administration that in at least in the, during the election period was dependent on rhetoric um, calling for a federal solution that never really materialized. Um, and, you know, we've, we've never really seen any kind of hard lockdowns nationally. I know, um, you know, I was in Indiana at the time living there, uh, finishing up my college. When I, you know, I, I came across the, uh, the fact that, you know, our governor had a kind of a soft lockdown for a period of time. And then everyone kind of just started saying, yeah, no, we don't like this. And then the minute a mask mandate occurred, uh, you had local police departments going out of their way to issue uh, statements saying they were not going to be forcing any punishment upon people who weren't following said mandates. Um, and unfortunately, Indiana is far from the only state that's been um, kind of in that situation. Um, you know, you could look at Florida, I think is the, is the big example, but other, you know, other states like Ohio as well and other like stereotypically uh, conservative states. But also, you know, you look at areas like New York City, um, you know, New York is uh, brought more broadly. And even in blue states, you can see that like, you know, COVID is is hitting everybody pretty hard. Um, I, you know, you you talked about the like, kind of market mechanisms playing a role in this. And I, I definitely agree. I, I think and the issue the U.S. has always had is that there's a general unwillingness to uh, slow down economic growth, even in the midst of a crisis. Uh, and we've we've kind of gone into this like hyper capitalist um, mentality where the nation is not solvent should the workers not be producing at all possible times in their lives. And, you know, COVID, I think, really exposed a lot of the structural problems that we already had, which is this kind of like over reliance on this kind of like, oh, you know, overbearing work ethic that like Americans have been kind of subjected to for for decades and really brought a lot of the contradictions to the surface of our of our larger economic model. Um, you know, beyond the fact that we didn't have any kind of cohesive, um, it, it seemed pandemic policymaking, uh, nor really any federal plan beyond mitigating the effects and, and enacting soft lockdowns that really kind of like started to do some damage, I mean, to COVID or started to, you know, do some good, you know, there really wasn't, it seems a larger plan. Um, and it seems once we got a handful of things, you know, whether that be an eviction moratorium, whether that be, um, a, you know, a small set of stimulus packages, what have you, um, whether that be, you know, uh, small business loans that have, have kind of dried up as of late as well, you know, you had these like early indicators that we might be able to have some sort of uh, response, but that was never actually, they never actually materialized into a larger um, month or year long um, set of policies. You know, you, you had the United States basically give it their best, uh, not, well, not even give it their best, give kind of a half-assed effort, if I'm being totally honest, a pandemic response for the first half of the pandemic when it seems our government was even taking it remotely seriously. And then the minute the party shift in leadership, uh, you know, the presidency and the Senate occurred, it was dropped to the side as kind of like an annoying issue that we needed to work through that is really a problem that it's impossible to work through, right? And a lot of that I think is dictated by capital. You know, you could look at CDC, um, re CDC revisions of their quarantine policies are right around the time you start seeing Delta Airlines and other companies rallying for a reduction in quarantine periods to get their workers back and staff. You know, you could see the uh, the elimination of eviction moratoriums that was really reinforced more heavily by SCOTUS. Um, you know, you could look at the erosion of uh, unemployment benefits that occurred during the initial stages of the pandemic, the erosion of financial support programs like uh, like, again, small business loans that have been 
kind of, you know, reduced. And then you also look at the stimulus uh, packages that have been wholly thrown to the side and eliminated outright. You know, even even like things that we all thought might have been more uh, long term, like a uh, child tax credit completely failed to materialize. And the child tax credit is going to be a demon in a few months anyway during tax season when everyone realizes that that's essentially going to be um, the reason why a lot of the people aren't getting tax returns that a lot of them, I'm I, a lot of working class Americans, I'm sure are probably expecting. Uh, but you know, th- there's all sorts of systemic issues. I think, you know, in, in short, my analysis or my, my kind of viewpoint on it is that capitalism, uh, and specifically the American, um, strain of, of capitalism have really led to uh, mass death and suffering that was pretty avoidable. And I know it's avoidable because you look at countries with significantly more population than us or, or countries with significantly different ways of handling this pandemic who have fared significantly better. I, you know, like China comes to mind, obviously, Vietnam, um, even other capitalist states like, you know, New Zealand have, have fared a lot better just by putting in more hardline policies and actually, you know, moving to have them followed. Now, in my opinion, New Zealand's not the best example because it's a scaling issue. You know, the United States is vastly different than New Zealand, both politically and otherwise. But, you know, I, I think it's impossible to understate how well certain countries have done that don't really have the same kind of like uh, traditional capitalist model, whether that be China, Vietnam, Cuba, et cetera. States that have, you know, all for all intents and purposes with the resources they've had handled the pandemic much, much better than our country. No, absolutely. I agree with you there. I think that, uh, honestly, uh, to touch on a point that you made earlier, um, that feeling that, you know, America was almost going to be forced into having to take action and to almost do this kind of quasi social democratic kind of uh, social safety net, kind of economic safety net type, uh, you know, motions that were going to be needed to help keep, you know, the country afloat, right? Um, you know, you have the instances of the stimulus checks and you have the instances of the eviction moratorium and all of these things, the, you know, the PPP loans, you know, and there was that real optimism. And it almost seemed like that, you know, um, once you give those things away, you can't take them back. Well, unfortunately, um, like you said, once I think there was that shift in leadership, um, the, the party left holding the bag that needed to, to uh, you know, be the overseers of that transition back out of, you know, um, giving away stimulus checks and and cutting uh, and and having a moratorium on evictions, um, that was the Democratic Party. Um, they were the party that took control um, of the Senate, um, basically by campaigning on "We'll give you a two thousand dollar check if you vote for us." Right? I mean, I'm sure you remember. Everyone here remembers about a year ago, um, the you know the push to win Georgia and and win those two Senate seats. Um, Warnock and Ossoff both ran on. $2,000 checks once the Democrats are in control, right? It's going to be a $2,000 check. And it took maybe a week and a half to two weeks for the Democrats to already start whittling that down and be like, oh, well, we didn't actually mean a $2,000 check. We met a $1,400 check that goes on top of the 600 that you were already earned. And that's the problem, right? That's the problem um, is that a lot of Americans were, were immediately then starting to see, oh, great, we're only a year into this thing. We're not out of the woods yet. We have no vaccine. Or at that point, the vaccine was not very well distributed yet, right? Um, and we're already starting to administer uh, and oversee this transition out of this, this you know, uh, scenario where the government was actually helping people for once, was actually, you know, have these these things these uh these things in play that would help keep 
uh, common people, working people afloat, right? At, in the time of, you know, these unprecedented times that we talk about. Um, and I think that a lot of that honestly just came down to the fact that, you know, we didn't want to spend money um, where money mattered. We wanted to go back to spending money on things um, such as our, you know, bloated military budget, or um, we wanted to give tax credits or t- tax cuts to, uh, you know, rich business owners. We had to get back to that status quo. And the party that really needed to oversee that status quo was the party that was in charge, you know, the Democratic Party. Um, one of the things you talked about, I think, one of, one, of the, one of the things that I think about a lot um, is the fact that it seems to me like there has been this real change and shift, and it could be this way all about it uh, the whole time. Um, obviously, we live in a country where, uh, you know, it's very, very difficult to receive medical, um, medical care, right? Um, unfortunately, our country, you know, and I think as leftists, we all agree with this, um, you know, our country is a country where, you know, patients are kind of seen as consumers first, and then they're seen as patients, you know, you show up to a hospital, um, and you could have be, you know, in, in pain, you could be needing emergency surgery. And sometimes, you know, you hear horror stories of a doctor showing up to like a, a grieving or a scared um, family member of somebody that needs emergency surgery. And before they conduct surgery, asking, how are you going to pay for this? Right. Um, that seems to be the reality. And it seems like that reality that we live in, especially here in the United States, is kind of what's prolonged this issue. Right. You see it with, you know. Once we once we started getting these at home tests, right, and those, those at home tests were kind of this breakthrough where it was like, yeah, they're not all the way, you know, uh, accurate, but they're at least going to give us an uh, uh, an understanding, right? And they're a little bit they're a little bit nice to have, like in the cupboard, you know, for you know when you have taken that PCR test and you're waiting the seven to ten days to get that result, which that's a whole other thing why it's still taking seven to ten days for results on a COVID test when it's two years into the pandemic is, is, you know, another, a whole other thing. Um, but then once the, uh, you know, the market, the, you know, the, the invisible hand of the market as everybody likes to talk about the market decided that these were the hot commodity. So what happens when you have a hot commodity? Well, they get bought up and then the ones that remain get, um, you know, the price gets driven up and, and you're seeing, you know, these kind of dystopian images in the middle of a pandemic of these at-home tests, which probably, you know, in, in my opinion, should be administered for free. You know, uh, you know, yesterday or two days ago, as we're recording this, you know, uh, it was announced that the, the United States would be providing four free tests per household, which is a good step. But in all reality, you know, we should have been there a long time ago, but these at-home tests, we're being put and you're seeing these dystopian images of these at-home tests in lock boxes behind glass at Walmart with a price tag of $128 or something for an at-home test. Um, you know, I know that where I live, um, an at-home test can cost up to $10 and you're only allowed to buy up to six of them to kind of keep people from buying a bunch of them. But you're seeing people price gouge. You're seeing people scalping these tests as if they are tickets to a Foo Fighters concert. It is absolutely incredible watching kind of this this cons- these, this the, this consumerism um, is kind of taking over humanity at this point, right? It's like we have to sell this for a profit. We have to make as much money off of this as we can. When in reality, it's like that could be a that could be a test that somebody really needs right now. You know, a test where you know their entire family 
is, is positive for COVID, but, you know, they have to go to work because, you know, we are not letting people stay home. You know, they have to go to work and they have to brave it. And that's, you know, that's un the unfortunate reality right now is we're seeing scenarios like this all across the country where it seems like money and profit are being placed in front of the health of, of you know, many Americans. And like you said, I think that COVID is not what brought about these problems. I think COVID is just what has brought them to light and brought them to center stage. These problems have been around in our country for a long time. This kind of for-profit healthcare system, you know, it's, it's all about uh, how much money can you make and, and how much money can like the pharmaceutical companies make and, and less about let's keep our population healthy. And I think that COVID has really exacerbated those problems and it has brought those problems to the forefront as we've really gone in uh, now entering our <laughs> third year of this, um, which is absolute insanity. And it has prolonged the issue. It totally has prolonged the issue. Um, we are the hardest hit um, country, right? And that's the reasons behind that are the fact that you know, we are kind of, we have a group of people who are out there who are trying to profit off of this. And, and that's the problem is we are, we're, we're kind of, instead of approaching this with a human, humanity first mindset, we're approaching this with, you know, how is this going to lie in my pockets or, or, you know, we have to open things back up so that way the people can make more money and the economy can get back in order instead of, I don't know, if we open things back up, then a lot of people are going to be sick. We're seeing that every day. And that's kind of the issue that I'm having. And it's an issue that a lot of people are having where morally it's just abhorrent. Um, and I'm just curious, like what your thoughts are on that. Hey, you're listening to the Soul Strategies Podcast. Take a moment to listen to some of our esteemed champions and their takeaways from the program. It's, it was very important for me to manage uh, time. And the program, again, helped with the discipline of time and helping with the management of time so that, um, so that you can actually structure yourself to do that what you desire uh, uh, for your races. For more information, head over to soulstrategies.com now. Well, I mean, I, I agree. I, I think, you know, Americans really, like we collectively need to have a serious discussion, in my opinion, about the, the value of a healthcare system that prioritizes like short-term profits for both, um, you know, the businesses running and shareholders over the general well-being of our population and whether or not that's a system that's really sustainable, especially in the midst of like a nationwide pandemic where, you know, specifically low income people and communities of color who historically have been kind of neglected in terms of like both healthcare infrastructure investment and like wealth uh, accumulation and income, um, whether or not like a, a virus that's disproportionately affecting those communities um, can really be fought by a healthcare system that doesn't prioritize those communities, even in good times. Um, and and I, I think it, it's a serious problem that, you know, when we, when we talk about like healthcare, you know, I think a lot of the framing is around like cost. A lot of the framing is always around, um, oh, like what is it that people really deserve? Because Americans for decades have tied healthcare to employment. Um, you know, we, we've tied a lot of the, um, the things that we should really have is, is just basic guarantees um, are all tied to employment whether that be housing, whether that be food, clean water, uh, whether that be healthcare, et cetera, education, all of these things are essentially contingent on one's ability to be productive in an economic structure, um, or sorry, be, be, just be, economic, be economically productive. <laughs> and you know, the, the issue that we run into with a system like that is that system doesn't work in the best of times, really. Like there's always been systemic imbalances and problems, but in the worst of times, these problems are only exacerbated 
and only create more pain and suffering for millions of people who might have been able to avoid that pain and suffering under a different set of, um, you know, of goals or a different prioritization of like both, you know, the people within this economy and the economy itself. Um, you know, there's a reason in my mind why a lot of countries that have universal healthcare systems and that also have pretty robust social um, safety net programs are managing this pandemic a lot better than we are. Um, and I think the reason for that is when you have a lot of Americans who, one, aren't really able to even obtain um, healthcare ordinarily, who are now trying to go into these massive medical facilities, stay in ERs, other areas, they're now bankrupting them. Um, also now dealing with uh, disabilities that might um, come as a result of COVID, whether that be uh, heart and lung problems, um, brain-related issues, et cetera. You're having these people struggling. Uh, on top of that, these are the same communities of people who, if you're only like one or two paychecks away from being uh, unable to afford rent, then you taking a week off of work with no real unemployment benefit guarantees that really supplement um, your losses, you could lose your home. Your family could lose their home. So you now have an incentive for sick workers to continue working, thus you know infecting not only other staff members but you know customers, and you've just created this really weird, this really weird set of problems. Um, and also, you know, like there's been a lot of talk about kind of the universal access to both the vaccine and, um, you know, boosters, et cetera, but that's really not the case. You know, um, I can't tell you the amount of people I know in low in low income areas, particularly communities of color who have voiced concerns that like masks are hard to find. Um, you know, these vaccine, these vaccines are a little bit harder to find. We know just by looking at the data for the vaccine rollout, that the vaccine itself was was disproportionately rolled out to predominantly white areas. And even in um, communities of color, you know, you're still seeing better coverage for white citizens and more wealthy citizens in these low income or, uh, communities or communities of color than their than their counterparts. Right. I mean, like we have these systemic imbalances that result from a for profit system that's also, you know, within a system that's foundationally built on white supremacy and settler colonialism um, that just don't bode well <laughs> in a pandemic. Um, you know, so, so we have, you know, there's other, you know, other, binary, uh, other barriers to entry to with the, with the, uh, the vaccine primarily, um, you know, excess paperwork for some low income people, excess paperwork in, in low income communities, et cetera, that have been noted by a lot of activists and organizers in these communities. And it, it, it's just, the system itself is not built to work in the best of times. Um, and that's really indicative, I guess, of a capitalist system, but the system is especially not built to work in the worst of times. And now we're sitting through not even the worst of times with, you know, officially less than a million, unofficially like more likely more than a million deaths from COVID. Those deaths being disproportionately working class people. Um, and, and that's something our country is going to really have to wrestle with for the rest of time is just this legacy of just death and suffering. The the billions that were light of dollars in costs that we're likely going to be incurring from people with long term health complications as a result of catching COVID. Um, our country really is going to have to wrestle with the fact that like we are having all of these problems because in the short term, we prioritized GDP growth. Um, and that's really unfortunate in my mind. No, I think that's absolutely true. I think I think the the overwhelming scale of this tragedy um, that has been this pandemic is is not going to be felt, um, I don't think, until um, years down the line, I think uh, is one of the most kind of disheartening things to think about is like think i mean think about a day such as you know 9 11 right we talk about you know how the gravity the gravity of that day and the uh, the amount of life lost on that day 
um, as a day that really shook, you know, the, it changed the course of America, right? Um, well, we're having that amount of people die every single day and Americans are completely desensitized to it. You know, in the, in the beginning of the pandemic, every, um, every news station had a COVID counter uh, that, that, was, that would run 24-7, no matter what was on, you know, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News even for a while, um, would have those COVID counters that would tell you the global infections and the global death rate and the United States infections, the United States death rate. Um, and that was two years ago. And that was back when, you know, a thousand people having COVID felt like a lot of people and a thousand people dying of COVID felt like a lot of people. And now we're at well over 3000 people in our country are dying every single day. We're approaching slowly, um, but surely approaching um, that, that figure. Right. And, and, and that, and that is why this has been so, so abhorrent is the, the fact that we have truly like lost more than a million people to this. Um, and, and it, and it seems like it, it, it seems like, we have almost been so desensitized to it now because it's like we we're, you know, we're so focused on bringing back, Oh, I just want my life back. Like I just want my life back. And it's like, well, unfortunately, you know, we did not take the right steps in the beginning to do this, you know? And I think that there's the the early politicization of COVID as well is to blame for this. I mean, just as much as it is to blame for widespread vaccine um, issues where it comes to, you have, you have the communities that obviously don't have the access to the vaccine that would like to take it. And you have the issues of the communities that have access to the vaccine and won't take it. Um, and a lot of that is also because of the early, like, you know, we politicized this, this virus early and, um, we're kind of reaping the benefits of it. And you see that on both sides. I think there is a lot of like casting the Republicans as being the only team, you know, because we, we really talk about as, as an, as a leftist, as an outsider who kind of watches these two warring factions that are the democratic and the Republican party every day. Um, and, and kind of feeling like, you know, neither of them really stand up for anything I believe in. Um, you know, the, the Republicans get a lot of flack, but, you know, it is important to remember that those death counters, um, you know, those COVID death counters went away from CNN and MSNBC when Joe Biden was elected president. You know, those COVID death counters went away. Um, and just as much as, you know, the, the, you know, the Fox News of the world wanted to, you know, kind of downplay the effects of the virus. Um, there was also that subtle downplaying, um, you know, the scale of the death and the magnitude of, of, of the, you know, the, the absolute, you know, destruction that has been left. And, and, you know, we're talking, you know, economic destruction as well. You know, there's plenty of businesses, you know, that just went belly up because, you know, the, the, the funding was pulled. PPP was the only thing keeping a lot of small businesses together. And when we decided, okay, we're opening back up now, um, you know, there really wasn't anything there for them once we decided to start slowly phasing out those loans and slowly phasing out those safety nets, you know, and you're seeing that everywhere now. You know, if, if I, I like to step back and I like to really think about it, um, if you think about COVID disconnected from other times in COVID, so you think about like this moment in COVID, um, and you, if you were to take yourself from, I don't know, January of 2020, right, you know, back when everybody was like super hypersensitive to it, and there were a lot of people that weren't paying attention to world news that were completely blindsided by COVID, but I think a lot of people who were paying attention to what was going on in the world we're starting to get a little nervous at that point. Right. And, um, I think that if you took like somebody from like January of 2020 and you told them, Hey, look, like 3000 people are dying of COVID every day, we would immediately be in a lockdown situation. And whether that would be a full lockdown, probably not probably closer to like the quote unquote lockdown we had, right. The whole stop the spread kind of lockdown, you know, uh, that really didn't do much. And it really wasn't an actual lockdown in the true sense of a lockdown. 
Um, I think that honestly, it just, it just goes to show the desensitization of everything, right? Is we're so desensitized to it. We've got, you know, you know, large groups of school children who haven't been able to get the vaccine, who are just now able to get the vaccine, um, you know, and they haven't been able to get it yet are, are constantly every day going to school, um, you know, going to these places uh, where they are gathering and where they, you know, mask or no mask, like it's still spreading. The Omicron variant is still spreading um, in these places. And we are, we are basically putting um, educators and school staff um, on the front lines of this. And they are, they are, you know, they're getting sick and it's happening and, and school children are getting sick. You know, it's this kind of double standard that we're seeing now inherent in like how we're going to treat COVID. You know, Jen Psaki um, and the White House press room, you know, made the decision that, you know, we had to cut down on the amount of uh, reporters that were allowed in the press room. Um, but at the same time, we're still cramming 30 something kids into these classrooms that are just the same size. Right. And it's like it's that like double standard that we're seeing that is really really causing harm. And I think that a lot of that, again, is because, you know, schools, a lot of schools are, 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 are there. And because when, when kids had to be home, it was hard for the parents to work, which is, you know, it's true. You know, when, when parents don't, you know, they have to go to work and they don't have a place to bring their kids, you know, uh, that was, that was a hard time at the pandemic is when, you know, you had parents who weren't able to work from home and you had kids that were doing school from home. You know, it's, 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 again, it's this, it's, it's because we have tried to do both at the same time, open and close without fully committing to one or the other. And that has been the issue is because again, you want to, it's, it's the, it's, it's trying to mitigate the virus while also keeping the economy going and keeping like the market happy um, in the you know capitalist sense. That has been the problem is this, is this both sizing of it, um, which kind of leaves us in the middle here, completely vulnerable, completely vulnerable to large amounts of infections and large amounts of people who are falling ill. And, and like you said, you kind of touched on at the end there, the true repercussions of this pa pandemic are not going to be felt um, uh, until like decades on when we really do kind of figure out the people who are going to be having lasting health effects to this and, you know, to put it in the minds of a capitalist, unfortunately, the way that you get to there, when we talk about healthcare, you said it, we talk about it in terms of money and how much this is going to cost, how much is this going to cost? How much is this going to cost? Well, if, if I'm going to, you know, throw away my morality real quickly and like get in, get in the weeds and talk about the pandemic in terms of cost like that in a way that's going to actually say, speak something and speak volumes to those types of people, um, people who are not you or I in our economic beliefs, um, this pandemic is going to end up costing millions upon millions upon millions upon billions, right? Because what is the total cost? Maybe even trillions, right? The total cost of all of the, all of the, all of the healthcare and all of the uh, operations and all of the medicine and all of the, you know, all of that stuff that's going to go into taking care of people who had COVID got over it, but are now dealing with the effects of quote unquote long COVID as we call it for the rest of their lives. And is that number, is that number a good enough number? Like, is that the number that we, we are taking over, you know, the number that would have been, here's what it would have been to give everybody access to healthcare. Here's what the number would have been to have everybody locked down and to keep everybody locked down and to keep providing those stimulus checks, those survival checks, as we called them, and to keep giving out PPP loans to keep those small businesses alive if they, if they, because they needed to, they needed it to survive. It's like, if you're going to play the money game, unfortunately, I think that 
you know, the money game was short-term profit, long-term, we are now going to have this mess on our hands and it's going to cost a lot of money. And, and unfortunately, like it sickens me to have to talk that way because like, that is not how I see this issue. I see this issue as a humane issue, as a moral issue. But if you want to talk about it as an economic issue, the economic effects of, cat, of COVID are going to be felt for generations and generations because we did not do it correctly. Um, and, and I mean, that's, that's just how I feel about the issue. And I, 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 I can't help but wonder you know, what it would have looked like had we had a more humane, a more people first, a more healthcare focused approach to this instead of a profit motivated approach to how to deal with COVID and get over COVID as fast as we can. So that way, you know, the market could get back to the way it was. No, I, I agree. You know, th there's this, um, you know, there, there's a movie. It's one of my all-time favorites, personally. It's called The Big Short. Uh, and in it, basically, for background on people who might not have seen it already, the, the Big Short is basically just a film about the 2008 financial crisis and a group of investors who were able to kind of predict it um, and, and basically bet against the housing market uh, a year or two before 2008. And one of the characters, um, one of the, this like ex-banker at one point says that you know, is, is they're celebrating or these two characters are celebrating, um, realizing that they were correct. You know, he makes the point that the thing that that he hated about like banking and the thing that I think I hate most about kind of a lot of the broader discussions of COVID is that it reduces everybody to numbers. Right. And the the human suffering that is occurring um, nationwide uh, disproportionately felt in black and indigenous communities and um, low income communities and communities that have been traditionally neglected already by our government um, is incalculable. Um, each one of those millions of people likely had a family uh, or sorry, those million people, million plus had a family, uh, probably had friends, had someone they've interacted with who they've impacted. Um, that's a lot of suffering. Um, that's a lot of pain. That's a lot of grieving. Um, and that's not even including people who are now uh, dealing with disabilities and dealing with restrictions on what they can do, um, on on what their bodies are capable of, uh, things they would have never in their lives, um, I think, feared they would have had to have dealt with. Uh, these these are the, rea the real problems, I think, inherent in the system that we that we have. And it's it's uh, it's frankly kind of terrifying. Um, and, you know, to bring it full circle, like this is the result of our economic model. Um, you know, there in my mind, there is no if, ands or buts about it. Um, our our country um, chose capitalism over the general well-being of the people because we live in a system that is not sustainable, that doesn't value the lives of workers beyond their productivity levels um, and that really values the accumulation of capital more than the accumulation of health um, or the retaining of a, a healthy population. Um, you know, we, we've seen billionaires and I, I know everyone who follows any progressives on anything has seen the statistic. We've seen billionaires make record profits as millions um, across the country, across the world um, have died. Um, we've seen, you know, Jeff Bezos, for example, uh, you know, Elon Musk make billions, if not trillions during this pandemic, as millions of us nationwide struggle to even get our government to give us, uh, you know, more than $1,400. Um, you know, it's, um, it's disheartening. 
And a lot of it is, in my opinion, driven by corporate interests, by business interests. These, uh, you know, these major players, uh, major corporations who would rather see their 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 workers temporarily in at work um, rather than staying home and taking the necessary precautions they need. Um, and that's unfortunately the issue with allowing uh, entities that are profit driven to dictate quarantine policy to dictate pandemic policy and what have you is that you're never actually going to get policies that adequately account for the damage done to the working class because the working class is again always in any discussion in the United States whittled down to a set of numbers and a set of figures that are and are not manageable dependent on the whims of whomever's in leadership at the time um and I, you know, I, I think that's something we're all going to have to really wrestle with. Uh, and I think furthermore, we're really going to have to wrestle with the fact that our, our system uh, fundamentally um, showed its, you know, it bared its own fangs and it really showed itself uh, in that both major parties, um, the minute they had the power and ability to do really anything, have chosen essentially apathy um, and doing little to nothing that would alleviate some of the financial and health stress being felt by a lot of people nationwide. You know, the Biden administration, um, they expanded COBRA, um, which is a, you know, a healthcare oriented thing uh, that really didn't do a whole lot of good. They, you know, they've openly been against things like Medicare for all, which, you know, if not in this pandemic and the next would be a lifesaver, I'm sure for millions. Um, they've been against raising the minimum wage so workers don't have to work as many hours to be able to uh, retain their basic needs. They've fought against um, or really had lukewarm support at best of things like eviction and rent moratoriums. Although, you know, in the Biden administration's defense, this is the rare time I'll ever come to their defense, SCOTUS really did uh, drop the ball on eviction moratoriums. And then the Senate and the House refused to really pick it up. Um, you know, you have all of these things. You have the, uh, the reduction of unemployment benefits, um, the refusal of another stimulus package, the, the unwillingness to cancel student debt, which is a massive debt burden, is particularly on younger generations as wages have stagnated and debt um, has soared, uh, you know, creating functionally a bubble that, though not as large, is similar in a lot of ways to the housing bubble we were facing in 2008. Um, and thanks to uh, Joe Biden, actually, uh, Americans are unable to default and declare bankruptcy on those loans uh, due to existing legislation that he uh, he pushed through. So. <laughs> we're we're in a, in a system, you know, as you know, as much as I try to be an optimist, uh, we're in a system that really does prioritize uh, short term economic profit over anything, even if that means killing uh, more than a million Americans for the sake of uh, blood sacrifice to the uh, the capitalist economic machine. Uh, and that's, you know, I, I, I don't really have words for that, if I'm being totally honest with you. Yeah, and unfortunately, like there really is kind of it's kind of hard to put a positive spin um, as we wrap up uh, as we wrap up here. It's it's really hard to put a positive spin on these events because I think, like you said, um, all COVID did was really highlight and bring light to the darkest um, and most um, most backwards um, parts of the American machine, right? Um, one thing that's never been lost on me, kind of as now we're about two years out um, from when, you know, that we felt like we were actually doing something 
Um, I will come full circle. I will open up and say, yeah, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter. Um, and I did a lot of volunteer work for Bernie Sanders and it's not lost on me. Like you said, Medicare for all could have saved, if not in this pandemic, then in the next, um, could have, could have helped at least helped millions upon millions of people be better equipped to deal with this. And it definitely would have saved thousands. Um, I can't help, but think about the irony that when this pandemic that had a pandemic of the scale which had not been seen in a century came knocking on the door you know the candidate that was pushing as his number one platform as his number one policy a complete overhaul of the healthcare system of this country a complete he was going to drag this country into the 21st century when it comes to healthcare. Um, the, the establishment came together and made sure it didn't happen. With all of this going on in the background, with COVID surging, um, you know, making its making its way outside of you know the original infection areas and kind of spreading across the globe like wildfire the man that's and the man in the in the candidacy and the campaign and the, the whole idea that was hopefully going to bring about a response um was seemingly kind of had the rug pulled out from underneath them right and i think that's the that's how we all felt um where you know a lot of early wins and then you know the machine kind of you know put a stop to that because that's not what's supposed to happen um, and I absolutely do believe that in an alternate timeline, if we do have a different administration, potentially there is a different um, outcome, or at least a, at least there's more done. I feel like there's there's debt cancellation, um, and then there's you know there's at least a push to kind of uh, a fight back against this for-profit healthcare system that we have in this country that has really really done the damage. Um, and I guess like the one thing that we can take away from this um you know is is just we need to learn from our mistakes sooner or later because there are more pandemics out there and there are more scenarios like this out there and if anything covid bringing to light how ill-equipped the united states of america was to deal with this issue on a global scale um has really kind of, I want to say COVID has probably sped along the uh, the death of American empire to not overstate it um, because it really has shown just how ill-equipped we are to handle any issue of this magnitude. Um, and I guess that's just something to leave you with, something to kind of ponder um, as we head into uh, the next week. Um, thank you again, James. Uh, obviously, if you want to uh, check James out on Twitter, uh, James, you want to give your uh, your social media handles as we sign off here? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, you can. I, I do a lot of uh, political discussions and education across uh, platforms. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Make It Rain, and you can find me on uh, TikTok uh, at James Gets Political. Yeah, and uh, for me, uh, it's uh, TikTok. I, I, you know, I still use my TikTok every now and again, and my Twitter uh, at Steve's The Means. Um, and thank you for listening to another uh, Soul Strategies uh, podcast. We'll be back up here next week. 
Um, and uh, just something to part with, uh, you know, when we talk about things like this, it, it can be very hard to kind of remain optimistic, obviously. Um, and it's kind of hard to put a positive spin on things. But uh, if anything, let the last two years and counting of, of COVID capitalism kind of, I'll, I'll, if anything, let that kind of give you a feeling for how badly we need people who are willing to make change and fight for change um, in this country. Um, so thank you again, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you.